Man, I was, I was, I was thinking this week. Um, today we're going to talk about a time when things got so bad. In the, in the book of Genesis, things were so awful. The, the word the Bible uses is ruined. Things were so ruined that there was only one, there was just one thing to do. And it is the greatest catastrophe in the entire story of our planet. And it all happened because um, something that the Bible calls trespassing. Anybody ever been at a wedding or a church service and they broke into the Lord's Prayer and you were tracking along good until it came to that one spot where they're going to say, forgive us our, and you're like, is it going to be sins? Is it going to be debts? Is it going to be trespasses? I don't want to say the wrong thing, you know? Um, but the Bible does, the Bible talks about sin as trespass. I was thinking to myself, when's, you know, I'm like the people in the Bible. When did I trespass? I remember the worst spanking I ever got in my whole childhood. What made it worse was that it was from my grandpa. And grandpas are just supposed to give you candy and let you do whatever you want to do. My grandfather did not get that memo. We, my parents would go on vacation, so I'd go, we, oftentimes we'd go spend a week down in San Diego with my grandparents. And I remember my grandparents had moved into kind of like a retirement subdivision. But it was in the mountains of San Diego, so it was like the neighborhood was terraced. It wasn't flat, which meant that, you know, on both sides of my grandpa's house was kind of like a slope. And on that slope, that people would put a lot of money into planting little palm trees and little bushes and all that stuff. It was a newer development. And so my, my grandpa's neighbor had gone through a, I'm sure, fairly expensive landscaping project on his side slope. My grandfather looked me in the eye. Says, stay off that slope. What did I say? Of course. What did I do? <laughs> He didn't understand that we were playing an imaginary game and terrible. I was in a fight. I was in the battle of my life against these imaginary characters. And it just so happened the war went to the slope. What was I supposed to do? I tore that slope. To, I tore it apart. My, my grandfather, you know, called my name. Then we went out. Seth, let's go look at the slope together. <laughs> who, who did this? You know what I say? You know, first I wanted to say, I don't know. No idea. No clue. Um, I trespassed. I stepped into territory that I did not belong in and did damage that I, you know, I, I didn't know. Today we're going to hit um, an account in Genesis um, a terrible trespass. A boundary line that got crossed. It's not only awful, the results of it would be, I mean, incredulous. But the trespass that happened between two different realms today, um, we're going to come right stark right in the face of something that we hit all the time in the Bible, which is the Bible is constantly telling us about things that we have to take by faith. And today we are going to be right there. I anticipate, as many of you, some of you will hear this story for the first time. Some of you will have skipped over this chapter in Genesis for good reason. Because you're like, what does this even mean? And yet I can't, I can't skip over it. So it's going to be my responsibility to open up the text and say, from what I see in the Bible, this is what this means. And this is what it means for us. 
And uh, it's about a great trespass, the one that led to the worst event that ever happened on our planet. So if you want to take out, is, is everyone interested now? I, what I'm going to say is not going to be boring. Uh, if you get out your copy of God's Word uh, and open it, Genesis uh, chapter 5, I'm going to ask that you stand to your feet for the, as we honor the reading of God's Word. Uh, I'm going to start at Genesis chapter 5, verse 25, and then we're going to read uh, Genesis chapter 6. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called him Noah saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters, and all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved into his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, covered inside and out with pitch. This is how you were to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Let's pray. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm painfully aware of how much of your help I need right now. And I, Lord, I pray, would you help the meaning of these words come? It's not coming from me, it's from you. But Lord, help it come through me in a way that strengthens our faith. Um, 
in a way that helps us. We need so much help. And Lord, in a way that honors and glorifies you. Lord, you're the most important person here in this room right now. And let everything that we do, let everything I say, let everything that we think, let it happen in a way that glorifies you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And you can have a seat. Okay, I have a few goals in this sermon I thought I'd let you know right from the outset so you could know if and when we've been successful. The first thing is I, I have to tell you about the Nephilim, and we've got to talk about this event. Um, so that, that's one of my goals is that we all leave here not puzzled about this. Okay? Uh, I have a second goal in this sermon, which is I also have to talk to you about what does it mean that God repented? What does it mean that God regretted? He looked down at the situation, and, he, and he, had, he experienced a response to that. What does that mean? And then the third one is, what does this have to do with us? What does this mean for us? All right, so three goals today. And we're going to have to work together as a good team to do this, okay? Um, now, I think that everybody right away knew that we were talking about something astounding and out of the ordinary as soon as I told you that Noah was 500 years old when he was having three boys. Anybody here know a 500-year-old? Um, and Scripture tells us in chapter 6, verse 1, that man began to multiply on the face of the land. And it's not kidding around. Sometimes because we live in, in the era that we do, we look back in the Bible and because of so much of what evolutionary ideology has taught us, we think about ancient man as stupid and not very many of them. And neither one of those things are true. Adam was the very first man. Some of the very first words that he spoke were wonderful poetry. Um, ancient man lived you know, between 800 and 900 years you think how wise that made them? Not only that, ancient man you know, lived 800 or so years, which meant that, um, meant that Adam was still was alive on the face of the planet for 50 years at the same time that Noah's father was. See, we think about generations rising and falling very rapidly, and they do. So when we think about 10 generations ago, when you think about your great, 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 great grandfather, he seems like a, a, you know, he seems unreal to you. He's so old. And yet, what if nine generations of your grandfathers were all hanging out, all would come over to your house and watch the Eagles for the Super Bowl next week? And you could say, hey, great, 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 grandpa, can you tell me what happened again a thousand years ago? And he'd be like, I'd love to tell you that. I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> one, of the, one of the questions people often have, why? How could the story of the Bible be held together with such accuracy when these things happened? And you go, well, Adam and Noah's dad were alive at the same time. Um, and when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, I mean, even the Bible tells us God's, when God came to look at the planet and he judged it, he said, this is what I see. He says the entire earth, the entire earth is filled with people and the entire earth is filled with people who are transgressing, who are, who are corrupt. 
even if we made conservative estimates and assumed that every one of these 10 generations, had, let's, let's just say Adam had 10 kids and then all of his sons had 10 kids and then all of his grandsons had 10 kids, you start doing the math and the fact that their life expectancy is so long. It, if you ask yourself the question, at the time of the flood, how many people do you imagine were on the face of the planet and where were they? And I think for a lot of us, because of what, like I said, because of what we believe, we think about ourselves as advanced people and, and these people as sparse and stupid. It means that the picture that we have of the event that happened at the flood is just not what the Bible says. If we took conservative estimates, this means that by the time of Noah's life, there would be 10 billion people on the planet, 3 billion more than today. And the Bible says, God looked and said, the whole earth is full. The whole thing, and it's full of people, and all of those people are full of corruption and, and sin. You ever felt in the minority, like at your, you go to work and you're like, I'm a Christian, and I just feel like, I, you know, there's just not very many of you. You ever feel that way? You ever go to school, you know, and I don't know, maybe you're a junior at Lenape and you're like, I don't know how many kids are Christian here, but it sure doesn't feel like there's very many of us. And you ever feel like, oh, we're, you know, I feel kind of alone here. There's 10 billion people on the planet. And Noah and one little family, eight, eight people survived the flood. Eight people. Imagine what it was like for Noah and his family. What it would have been like to have been a righteous man walking with God in faith when an entire planet. You know what I mean? Like sometimes don't you, as Christians walking around America, don't you sometimes feel like, gosh, you know, outside of, you know, our church, maybe there's only a hundred other Christians in the whole country. Doesn't it sometimes feel that way? You know? And this, this transgression and corruption, I reached a tipping point. I mean, if, if you think about it, you think about what kind of thing would have had to happen for God to look at the, the entire created order on planet Earth and say, I'm going to undo this. I'm going to take this apart using the same plan that I used to put it together. And I want you to think about what How many people died in the flood? The Bible says it wasn't just the people who died in the flood. The Bible says that every every land creature, every creature that was on the land, human beings, livestock, animals, wild beasts, creeping things, everything that lived on land, every single thing that lived on land and every bird that flew in the air that needed the land, Gone. And what, what would have had to happen? I mean, it's, that's not, doesn't that sound like an astonishing event? What would have led God to say, that's it, that's the last thing, now it's time? And the event that happened led to this was a great transgression. Um. And we can pick it up at chapter 6, verse 1. If you have your Bible, we wanna, because these words are important and you know, we want to make sure that, they, that we interpret it correctly, we want to follow the words exactly. 
So a man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it sounds like it means. But what it sounds like it means seems incredible. Yes? Is it, well, we don't know yet. What does it mean? Um. Well, first of all, we'd have to say, well, who are the sons of God in this? And the, the phrase sons of God is only used four other times in the Bible. And every time that the phrase sons of God is used, it's talking about the angels. So the angels look down. Now, um, so it, every angel name that we ever have in the Bible is male. So the, the angels are looking down. And they're looking down at the daughters of men. Now, when the angels say that they're looking, when the, when the angels are looking, what the, we looked at this when we talked about Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were opened. And what that means is that they, they were making a judgment for themselves. So the angels are now looking at the daughters of men and they're making a judgment for themselves. The same thing that Eve did when she looked at the tree and she saw it was attractive. This looks really good. I want to have this. And so she reached out and took it. The angels looked at the daughters of men and made a decision for themselves. That, that looks good. And the angels took the daughters of men as their wives, any they chose. And the, what was born out of this union between angels and these women were born giants, mighty men, people of renown. A great boundary was crossed here. Now, I will say that if you, if you were to look into this in your commentary or study Bible, there's lots of, Lots of Bible-believing Christians who will be in heaven will look at that and say, no, that's not, that's not what it's talking about. And I'll, although, you know, you don't have to believe this to be a Christian, we do want to basically use a principle. Anytime we come across a part of the Bible that we go, this is kind of hard to understand, there is the one best place to help interpret what the Bible says is what? The Bible itself. What do other parts of the Bible say about parts that are hard to understand? Um, everybody knows Jesus had a brother, a couple of them. Two of them wrote books of the Bible. One of those brothers' name was Jude. Um, and so if you have your Bible, I want you to turn over to the book of Jude with me. Because we're going to see, okay, if this, if this event that sounds unbelievable, you're telling me that angel men came down and had, they took wives of human women and they had children, and it sounds like what you're talking about is Zeus. Sounds like what you're talking about is these ancient heroes, part divine, part human. It's, okay, come on, what kind of church am I coming to here? This is weird. And... Um, well, what did Jesus' brother say about this? 
Uh, Jude, I want you to turn to uh, verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now, does everybody remember that event in the Bible? Remember God's people? And remember they were being treated so terribly? And there was nothing they could do about it? And so they cried out to God, God, can't you please help us? And then didn't something pretty incredible happen? I mean, wasn't it an astounding miracle? And he's saying, you know, you once fully knew Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So this is Jude, Jesus' own brother, saying that these angels pursued a kind of unnatural sexual desire, and because they did, they left their station. And when they left their station, they have been condemned, and they're being saved up, and God is going to ultimately and eventually totally deal with them. Uh, I don't have time. I could go on in both Second Peter and First Peter. Peter addresses the very same thing. Listen, I know for us modern people, sections of the Bible like this can be hard, hard to believe. Um, however, we live in the world that God says we live in. And God tells us all throughout the Bible, you live in a weird world. You live in a world where there are heavenly beings and creatures that God has made that are wondrous and astounding. And God tells us that the world that he created in the opening chapters of Genesis, the events that happened before the flood, this world was a completely different world than the one that we live in. But I mean, I have to be honest. If you stand back and ask the question, say, God... What happened that was so bad that you had to, that you destroyed all life? Um, why would he do that? Now, the, the account tells us that the whole earth was was filled with corruption, and that that this event this event was such a tipping point because, okay. Because if what happened was, if, if the angels were married to human women and they gave birth to hybrid, genetically engineered people, what would have happened if those giants would have made it again with the angels? What would they have been like? And what, would, what if they had done it again? And what would that have been like? And where was this whole thing going and Why? Now, Genesis tells us God is expressing his own response to this. And he says, every device is what the, the, the word scripture uses. Every device of these people is evil the whole time. What, what is the device and what is it that they're trying to do? Now, we know that Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and every other one of these, uh, every one of these people who grew up when the, when the Garden of Eden was, uh, when the door to the Garden of Eden was guarded by angels, 
Um, they, they grew up with a memory and an understanding of what life was like in that garden with the tree of life, the beauty and the wonder was, that was in there. But because of their trespasses and sins, they were not allowed back into the garden. Those angels guarded the way back. Um, but they couldn't live with that. And from what I understand of these verses, this is an attempt up from the human race. It's an attempt to reach out and reach back into the divine world to bring the divine world to them, but not to go to God for it. And this is the whole point of the teaching in First Peter and in Jude. Um, that there's, there's only one way. There's only one way that we can come back to being in fellowship with God. And enjoying all the richness and beauty and glory of his world. There's only one way to do that. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. There's only one way. And that way is through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. And there are many people throughout human history that will consistently try, attempt to get in touch with the world of the divine. And are we any different in our day? How many times will people get out a deck of cards and try to shuffle the cards in the right way, hoping for some kind of, some kind of guidance from the spirit world? Now, they don't want to go to the Bible, which has incredibly well-crafted guidance for that. Are we that different from these people? <clears throat> and so now the Lord... God is, when it says, when the, Bible, when the Bible says that God looked on it, obviously God sees everything that happens. When God's looking at something, he's coming to a judgment decision. And his judgment decision, when he looks at this entire thing, Scripture says that he regretted. He repented of this. Now, in Numbers, it says that God's not a man that he should repent. So it, it can't. It can't be that he's looking down there and saying, oops, I, this is kind of spun out here. I didn't know that all this stuff was going to happen. I wish I hadn't gotten involved in this project at all. But there are many people who read the Bible and who will say that. There are some people who deny that God has foreknowledge and that he knows everything. Some people who would teach that, that God is making it up as he goes along. And he's prepared to deal with all kinds of different things, but he doesn't really know what's going to happen. And that's, the Bible doesn't support that view. What does it mean that God looks down and he repents? Well, what do we do when we repent? Repentance for us has two parts. First off, there's a heart part where we say, oh, it, we're struck. And we look at the things that we've done and we regret. We go, if I could go back and undo it, I would. I can't go back and undo it. But I wish that I would never have done it. What can, what can cleanse me from having done this? So we know that that can't be the kind of repentance. God's not looking down saying, look what I've done. I've made a terrible mess of things. I've, I feel repentant of that. That is, not, that is not true. But what's the other thing that the Bible tells us to do when we repent of something? It says not only should we have feelings of repentance, but we should have actions of repentance. And what are the actions of repentance? You, whatever path you're on, 
Repentance means you turn around, you make an about face, 180 degrees, and you start walking back the other direction. Sin is moving away from God, and repentance is turning back and coming back to God. So if repentance means making an about face and heading the opposite direction, this is the kind of repentance that Genesis is talking about. And we're going to see in the flood story, God precisely stops turns around and starts going the opposite direction. Up to this point, he's been creating and filling the earth with life. And at this point, he is going to turn around and he is going to move the opposite direction. And when he has moved back the opposite direction, he will have decreated the world. But it does say that not only does he he repent, he's going to decreate the world because of this event. But it also says that his heart was grieved. Okay, now, what does that mean that God's heart was grieved? First off, does God have a heart? This is important. When you're reading the Bible, it's good to ask yourself these kind of questions. The Bible teaches that God is spirit. Does God have a heart? Well, okay, well, what do we mean by that? Well, you and I are made in the image of God, right? Do you have a heart? What's the answer to that? Everybody with me here? You're like, Seth, you talked about angels and women having children. What are are we supposed to think about now, right? Do you have a heart? Yeah, you do. Um, And you have a heart because you're made in God's image. And how, when it comes to your, you know, you have a regular heart, And then the Bible tells you that to become a Christian means to have a heart change. For God to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And when does this happen to you? This happens to you when the Holy Spirit comes and enters your life. Which means that the Holy Spirit becomes your heart. This is one of the reasons why Paul could write in Romans chapter 5. That God's love is poured out into your heart. And it happens when the whole, by the Holy Spirit whom you've been given. The Holy Spirit becomes your heart. So when the Bible says that God was grieved in his heart, he's not just taking on human language and say, sort of saying, well, I'm going to communicate to you inaccurately, but in a way that you would understand. God is a spirit. And who is his heart? The Bible tells us from the very beginning that God is a trinity, The Father looks at the Son with love and adoration. The Father loves the Son. The Son looks back at the Father and loves the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the love. When Genesis tells us that God's heart, God was grieved to his heart, this means that the Holy Spirit was in pain. We know that it's through the Holy Spirit that God runs the world. And the Holy Spirit was present in a world where there was so much hatred of God, trespass of God. The Holy Spirit is in pain, and God the Father is not going to let the Holy Spirit live in pain endlessly in that way. And when God looks down at the corruption that's happening and what's happening to his Holy Spirit, What does a just, righteous, loving God going to do in a situation like that? And, And God acts. 
And he acts powerfully. And only eight people make it. Just Noah. And his, and his family is three sons. And why? The Bible says Noah was blameless. And we know that this doesn't mean sinless. What it meant for him to be blameless was the same way that it meant for Abel to be blameless a couple weeks ago. What did Abel do? Abel came to God the way God said, this is how you have to come to me. Noah and all his family came to God the way that God said that he was to come to him. And in that, in that act, Noah and his family were blameless. And Noah walked with God. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we find out in the book of Hebrews that the one thing that that meant was Noah had faith. And that faith, we understand, comes into everybody's life in only one way. It comes as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Because what does it mean for Noah to walk with God? Does God have legs and feet? What What does it mean for a person like Noah or you and me to walk with God? What does that mean? It means for you to spend time in God's world where he is and God is spirit. It means to have and walk with the Holy Spirit. Noah and those eight people had a relationship with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So even though there was only eight of them and maybe 10 billion terribly sinful other ones, and I mean, I want you to think about this picture of what happened for the 120 years while Noah was building a, a, a boat in the ancient world the size of a current Navy battleship. While he was building that boat for 120 years, he was surrounded by an, by an environment that was awful. People who were sexually sinning in ways that are unspeakable at a Sunday morning worship service. Giants, giant hybrid beings around the earth that were born from the union between angels who had fallen, therefore they're demonic. Not to mention the Bible says that all flesh had corrupted their way. So what was happening within the animal kingdom? I mean, when when God judged the earth and said, this entire thing is corrupt and ruined, and Adam for 120 years built a boat being surrounded by that environment. And what did he do? He did the one thing that everybody else would not do. He believed God. He listened to God. He walked with God. He came to God. You, you ever wake up in the morning or scroll through the news and go, oh my gosh, there's a Chinese balloon floating across our whole country. <sighs> the home state, the, the state I lived in just a few years back, that uh, Jenny and I spent a lot of time in. I think over 14 years, we live in the state of Minnesota. state of Minnesota just passed a law. Their goal is to be a sanctuary city for teenagers and children who want to um, uh, live a transgendered life. A, sa- a sanctuary state. 
Um, I, I could go on, right? Are you grieved? It's good. That's good. We should be. We, when we look around and we see the, the trespasses, when we see that things are getting so corrupted, how does God feel about that? He's, oh, it offends his holiness. He looks down and says, it's not supposed to be like this. This is not the way to do this. God not only created things wonderfully, beautifully, he, he designed them with this kind of intricacy and glory and a wonder. And when he sees the things that he's made, including the human beings that he's made, going about life in a way that's twisted, that's like, that's not the design. What kind of God would just go, oh, no big deal? Not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible looks that, oh, no. So we can wake up and we can look around and go, oh my gosh, look at all these things that are going like this. And we can be grieved. And it's right that we should be. That's true. But where could we look for some kind of... um, where could we look for some kind of illustration that would help, help us remember? That no matter how few, of, uh, you know, no matter few, how few of us there are, or how powerless we feel at the forces that are um, heading down the wrong pathway, where could we look to be encouraged that, like, oh, this has not gotten out of God's hand? Where can we look? See, here's the downside. There's many people who look at this story and the story that we'll cover next week, the flood, and go, this all seems too far-fetched for us. But if Jesus' brother Jude, who was a leader in the church, wrote a book of the Bible, and if Peter, in both his letters, First and Second Peter, both said, if you think things are getting bad and you're kind of wondering, can God rescue godly people out of ungodly times? Can God care for, protect, and rescue godly people during ungodly times, even when they are very, 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 very ungodly? There's only one story that both Peter and Jesus' brother Jude said. If you ever feel in that way, don't forget Genesis chapter 5 and 6. It was once, once upon a time in a land far away, in a time long ago, there was a very, 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 very wicked planet. And there was a guy, Noah. And it didn't matter that there were maybe 10 billion wicked people and giant hybrid beings and dinosaurs and all kinds of wicked creatures that had gone crazy. It didn't matter that he was surrounded by all that because he had the one thing necessary in order to survive times like that. And what is that one thing? God. He had God. So what about you? You know? 
Like I said, maybe you're feeling discouraged. Maybe you're one Christian in a corporation that it just seems like, I don't even know what's going on. And how am I supposed to be faithful here in this situation right here? Well, the one thing you ought not do, do not abandon God. Don't abandon God. Um, Yesterday, I came over to the church. um, One of a longtime uh, part of our church uh, died of a heart attack. And I was at his funeral service yesterday. And... Well, the pastor got up. I didn't, I didn't officiate. I was just attending. The pastor got up and did a wonderful job pointing everybody to think about heaven. Dave Smith, massive heart attack. He closed his eyes in this world, and he opened his eyes in the presence of beauty and wonder and glory that is unimaginable. Heaven. And one of the things when we read the opening chapters of Genesis and we see these things that seem unbelievable, angels go flying around everywhere, and what? Is to not forget God has, God has made the world. And God, God's made a spiritual realm and a physical realm, and they are filled with wonder. And if you make it through the flood of death, you'll be in that world with him. And the Bible says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard. You could not, your imagination would hit limits trying to imagine the amazing thing that God has created and planned for us. It's It's a wonder. But it all happens for us in, in just one way. And we all have to ask ourselves the question, do we have what Noah had? Has that happened to us? Earlier we were singing the song, I have a heart, I have a heart that beats for you. If you have a heart that beats for God, where does that heart come from? That heart is the Holy Spirit. If you have a heart that beats for God, that's because the Holy Spirit is your heart in you, beating with the same love that God has for the Son, the Father has for the Son, and the Son has for the Father. It's a, it's a great gift, and it only comes one way. It comes by the gift of faith. Noah wasn't rescued because everybody else was a terrible sinner, and he was a good guy who didn't suffer from those problems. That is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that walking with God and having faith in God and trusting in God is a gift that comes from him. And if you have it, spiritually, you can and will survive anything. No matter what the odds are. And that's that's the message. So I'm going to ask that would you stand to your feet? Let me close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, my prayer today is that, um, Lord, these you know that for us, these stories, um, for lots of us, we haven't heard anything like this before. For many of us, we've kind of read by these stories and said, I'm not sure what to do with that. But Lord, my prayer is, as we look at what you've told us in here, It's not just the beginning of the Bible that has things that are hard for us to even imagine. But the end of your Bible has them. 
because they're bookends of a great, incredible story of what you're doing. What you did at the beginning and what you're doing at the end. And Lord, I pray that as, you know, as we looked at these, as we looked at these verses today, that by the gift of faith that you've given us, that you would, Lord, teach us. Lord, help us to think about our world according to Bible lenses. And Lord, help us to remember that in our, you know, in our day, we look around and it can be discouraging. We could feel like we're in this minority and like the walls are closing in on us. And yet looking at what happened here, that you're promised that you're never going to let it happen that bad again, that that can be a comfort and an encouragement to us. Lord, also that if we've, by your work of grace, if you've given us a heart for you so that we walk with you, we're never going to, we're never going to walk alone no matter how alone we feel. And at the end of our walk, Lord, the end of our walk is you seated on the throne that's more beautiful than any fantasy novel we've ever read about. Surrounded by real angels and creatures, not ones that have fallen, ones that's held. And ones that are astounded by you and they, they sing about your holiness and your glory. And Lord, our whole our whole existence and at the end. It makes the beginning chapters seem like, well, that was easy to believe compared to all the things that you have in store. So Lord, stir our affections and our desire and our hunger to, to, to know you, to walk with you. And to know all the things that you planned for us. And Lord, I pray all this in Christ's name. Jesus told us that when we get together, that, you know, our our present world is so present to us. He said, when you get together, remember these things. And he gave us two physical symbols to do that with. In communion, both the the bread and the cup. The bread, he thanked his heavenly father for the bread and he broke it. And then he said, this cup is a new covenant. And he said, I want you to do these things and remember me. There's only one way that this kind of saving faith comes into our life, and that's because of the the life and the death and the sacrifice of Jesus' the Son. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he was instructing the church in, in Corinth about communion, one of the things that he said is, don't fool with this. Jesus is not to be fooled with. He said, some of you are coming in here and just because everybody else is doing it, you're taking the bread, even though you don't walk with God, you don't love God, you haven't come to faith in Christ, you haven't placed your trust in Christ. And I'm not saying that to scare anybody. I'm just saying that because this is a holy moment. Not because the cracker or the juice is holy, but to walk with God is. And what God did so that we could walk with him is holy. 
Jesus with his disciples. He lifted up the bread and he thanked God for it. And he said, this is my body. And it's broken. Only his broken body is enough to make a way back into the garden of the Heavenly Father. That's the only way. If his broken body is the only way that you're coming to God, then take and remember and eat all of us. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And we all know, what does our blood run through? Through our heart. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Which means the thing that animated and gave Jesus life is the same thing that animates and gives you spiritual life. And that's the, that is the person of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit is what's giving you spiritual life. He is your spiritual blood. And he only comes into our lives because of one person sends him. And that's Jesus. Jesus has given you new spiritual life. Take all drink. Okay, now, we're not a Baptist church, but we're a little Baptist-y, and that means, as Protestants, that was grape juice. All of you who are Catholics or from, like, an older tradition, you know that typically it's not grape juice. There's a little kick to it, yes? And um, one of the reasons why is, I mean, Jesus served wine, and one of the reasons why is because wine is like the juice that we just drank, except there's a little spirit in it, yeah? Um, because there's life in it. Because there's joy in it. Um, are you on your way to heaven? And if you are, shouldn't that make a difference to your face and to your heart and to your singing? I mean, shouldn't the joy of heaven bring the future glory into your life here and now? Isn't that what should happen? And that ha- and all of that's possible because of what he just did. It's an appropriate thing. The very last thing we'll do as we leave this worship service is singing. And I know for some of you, you're like, oh my, I... I've been sitting here with coffee breath now for 35 minutes and now you want me to sing. Um, My voice isn't that good. Okay, but one thing you got to know is in heaven, singing is required. Everybody will automatically be joined into the heavenly choir. It's not an elective. And so what do we do here? We remember and we're training. So it's an appropriate way for us to finish this worship service and, and finish this time of communion is singing. The, expressing hearts filled with love and joy and gratitude to God through the, the method of a song. So I'm going to ask the worship team, come. Let's finish our service with worship. Amen? Come lead us, Jake.